was very, I very much resonated with that last song we sang. Um, and very often what we do here, uh, gathering every, every Sunday and Wednesdays, is we're reminding one another of, uh, of who we are, the sons and daughters of God, and where we're headed. And uh, the song, the words that we sang was, is all creation groaning? It is. It is. All creation is groaning, and some of you have experienced that, and we all have experienced that to some degree, and we, we will see um, deterioration and death. All creation is groaning. But is a new creation coming? It is. A new creation is coming. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. The glory of the Lord is going to be with us um, as we're ushered into his presence and we see him face to face. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. And that's what we're doing today. We're reminding, uh, we're reminding ourselves of these things. That um, we are in a broken world. It is groaning and you and I will grow. Grown. And we'll go through death, and that is a hard thing. But new creation is coming. And the light of the glory of God is something that we will see face to face. And it's good to remind ourselves of these things. So today, I, with that in mind, with that with that theme of being reminded in mind. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 10. And as we continue our series in the book of Romans. So this week we're in Romans 10, and we're going to work our ways through uh, verses 1 through 9 today. The Apostle Paul in this section is talking about the problem of Israel. All right, and in the first century, as we've seen, many Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. And that is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, is it not? In you, I will bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring. And so God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in the gospel. The problem, as we've seen throughout chapter 9, is that many, many, of God's elect people, Israel, are not coming to faith in Christ. And what's the problem is they're rejecting God's provision. They're rejecting the Messiah that God has given them. And that's the context that we come into here. They're pursuing a law, and instead of the righteousness that comes from God, and this leaves Paul as an Israelite, as a Jew, um, with very great turmoil in his heart. That's where we enter into today in Romans chapter 10. So read with me, if you would, Romans 10, verses 1 through 9. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, 
is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to the heavens, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Has everyone, does everyone know the band U2? Pretty popular band for the past 30 years. They have a song, um, from what I understand, the lead singer is a Christian. And he has a song about searching. I think it's, I still haven't found what I'm looking for is a consumer refrain. He says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I just, I did some background research of that song, and it's about a spiritual seeker, a spiritual doubter, who is seeking and wandering, but not finding what he's looking for. Um, now, in this passage, Paul is detailing the problem with Israel. And they are spiritually zealous. Um, and they, they have a hunger for truth and in, in the, in the knowledge of God. But they have not found. They really have not found the thing that they're looking for. Because they're rejecting the Messiah. And I see such a parallel here between the first century Jew and the 21st century spiritual wanderer. There are, there are many people today who hunger for truth, who maybe are authentic, who are maybe honestly searching or seeking or wandering or something, um, and they just have not found what they're looking for. What they're looking for is what we sang about. The new creation that's coming in the midst of groaning, but the glory of God, and to be reminded of that. But many people cannot be reminded of something they don't know about. So what I want to do is, I want this sermon to be a letter to the spiritual seeker. I want it to be as if I was writing a letter to somebody who is seeking the Lord, or, or seeking truth. Seeking some spiritual foundation. This is for that person. And maybe, again, I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see everybody, but maybe some of you consider yourself a seeker right now. And maybe somebody watching here um, on Facebook or YouTube, where we put this up, maybe you consider yourself a spiritual seeker. This is the New Testament's letter to you, specifically. So let's start writing this letter 
with the Apostle Paul to the spiritual seeker that applies both to the first century Jew and the 21st century wanderer. Looking at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Know that for all the failures that you've seen in the church, for all the failures you've seen Christians um, do, um, know that we know we're imperfect, know that nobody is perfect, nobody, nobody can approach the holy hill of the Lord, like Patrick said, only one man did that. And so, through all of our conversations and all of our striving, the one thing we want for you, spiritual seeker, is that you may be saved. It is our heart's desire and prayer that you may be saved because we believe. We believe in eternity. And we believe in that which we cannot see. And we believe in judgment. And we believe that one day, there will be a judgment from Christ. And those who do not know him will be cast out of his presence. They will suffer a punishment away from the presence of the Lord, First Thessalonians tells us. And we also believe in the fellowship of the saints. And we believe in the reconciliation with God. And we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And we believe what Paul wrote to Timothy when he said that the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We believe that. We believe in eternity. We believe in judgment, we believe in glory, and we believe in safety in Christ. So our heart's desire for you, seeker, a wanderer, is that you may be saved. Our heart's desire for you is that time would not be an enemy for you, that steals away your existence and everything you knew. Our prayer for you is that time would bring you closer to joy. Our prayer for you is that as your body wastes away, you're coming closer to the resurrection body. Our prayer for you is that as you see the world crumbling down around you, you have hope in the kingdom of God that will come. Our prayer for you is that death would not be an end. For you, but it would be an entrance into the grand banquet halls of God's kingdom where we feast and fellowship together in the presence of Christ. That's our prayer for you. Now, verse 2. Spiritual seeker, we believe you have a serious problem, though. And the Apostle Paul in verse 2 says for I bear them witness speaking about the first century Jew that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge 
Now, back off that text just for a second. Is that really the problem today, that people have zeal for God? I don't think that's the enemy's weapon today in Western civilization. Using zeal, zealots for God who want to present to God their own self-righteousness. I don't, I think, I think people fall into that a lot, like we talked about last week. But I think a great, great, and a greater um, weapon of the enemy today is not zeal, but it's apathy for eternal things. I see great apathy in the world today. And the, the sword of apathy is entertainment, is ambition in worldly things, is being busy in pursuits where moth and rust destroy, creating an apathy for eternal things. That's what I see as the greatest problem today. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there is, there is another weapon the enemy uses. And in verse 2, Paul says, I bear them witness, the Jews, that they have an, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So their problem was not apathy. They had a zeal for God. But what their problem was, was a lack of knowledge. So it was not a lack of zeal, it was a lack of knowledge. So zeal means to have energy for a pursuit. It means to be passionate about a pursuit. And that's always a good thing. And we will welcome zeal as Christians, zeal for the Lord. But zeal without knowledge... Zeal without knowledge creates a man or a woman who is passionate, but passionately misguided. We need, as Christians, zeal with knowledge. And the first century Jew had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. The first century Jew, in other words, was authentic. But you can be authentically mistaken about something. I want you to understand this. It's not sincerity that Paul is blaming the Jews for having. They're not being too sincere. They're not being too passionate. They're not being too zealous. What their problem is, is that their zeal is not in accordance with reality. It's not in accordance with truth. Sometimes, sometimes when I say the word truth, I think people think I'm talking about something subjective. Like it's my truth or, or some kind of spiritual gas or something. That's why I like to use the word reality. Because the Bible, Jesus did not present us a way of thinking. Paul did not present us a way of thinking. The New Testament doesn't present us just a way to look at things. It presents us, according to its own testimony, how things really are. It presents us with reality. So sometimes... Don't, don't mistake truth for something other than reality itself. Truth is reality, and reality is truth. And the problem is that their passion, a person's passion, does not mean that they are therefore correct about what they're passionate about. Just because someone's authentic about something doesn't mean that their authenticity aligns with reality. Their problem was a lack of knowledge. 
I like what John Calvin says that, uh, commenting on this verse, he says it's better to limp in the right direction than to run in the wrong direction. And that is precisely what the first century Jew was doing. He was running in the wrong direction. In verse 3, the lack of knowledge is specified. Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, ignorance. I, I, like, I like the way a lot of other uh, translations translate this. Um, ignorance sounds, could sound like just not knowing about. And the New American Standard Version says, not knowing about the righteousness of God. Um, that's not the sense here. The sense is ignoring the righteousness of God. They are ignoring. So it's not like they just innocently didn't know about this. They're ignoring the righteousness of God. And many other translations bring that out better. So they are ignoring, the first century Jew was ignoring God's saving activity in Christ. His righteousness and what they're doing, what they're doing rather in verse 3 is they're ignoring God's righteousness and they seek to establish their own righteousness. That was their problem. It was rejecting God's provision in Christ. And here's what they ignore in verse 4. They ignore that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus, now, there is a, there's a, a, an exegetical debate here. So what does end of the law mean? And there are some people who think that, well, the end of the law means that, that, that uh, Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness. And there are other people who say, well, no, uh, Christ means the termination of the law. And there's, there's a debate about this, but modern scholars and pastors have, have seen that these two are not mutually exclusive. Christ is the fulfillment and goal of the law, is he not? But he is also, he is also the termination of the law as a means of right standing with God. Jesus said that the Old Testament pointed to him time and time again. And he told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But it is they that bear witness about me. But it's not just the hand that points to Christ. The law is like John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and he says, He must increase and I must decrease. That's the law. The law now for us today is over as a means of right standing with God. Hebrews. Uh, you know what? Let, let me... Let me back what I'm saying up by having you turn to Hebrews 8, if you would. Uh, there's great confusion about what to do with the law in the church and, and how we should relate to the law as Christians. And a very, uh, you know, theonomists think that, gosh, we, we, Christ's death only did away with the, uh, 
ceremonial aspects of the law, but that the civil aspects of the law and the moral aspects of the law still remain. Um, and there are others who think that Christ's death did away with the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law, but the moral aspects of the law still remain. I see no such divisions in Scripture. What I see is the law passing away. In Hebrews 8 is a great passage for this. So read with me in Hebrews 8, starting in verse 8. The author of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant. He says, For God finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. Uh, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Everyone who is part of the new covenant people, knows the Lord. And then Paul, the author of Hebrews, who some people think it is Paul, says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant law was like the moon at night. It gave sufficient light so that you would not trip and fall in the darkness. But once the sun is risen in the new covenant, it over it over it blinds out the light of the moon. The light of the moon is not needed anymore. The sun has risen. Amen. And the sun is Christ and his law is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that, that breaks out, um, can break out into many different things. But what we follow as Christians, as New Covenant people, is Christ. It is through him that we are reconciled to God. And it is his law that we follow. So that, that was a little diversion from what I want to say, but just for clarity about where we stand on the law. So here's the point. The law, which the Jews followed as a means of righteousness and truth and the way to God, that was actually the finger pointing to Christ. And to look at the law for them in light of this new covenant era was to stare at the hand, to stare at the finger instead of looking at the thing, at the object to which the hand was pointing. And the law was the hand in the sense that it showed men sin. And it showed men God's holiness. Remember, they couldn't even touch the mountain because God was so holy. And it showed men the need for sacrifice for sins. And it showed us our need for a Savior. 
So why was the law given in the first place? Paul says it was a tutor in Galatians 3. He says, so then, the law was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So yes, the law was our tutor in that it taught us about sin, it taught us about holiness, it taught us about sacrifice, the promise of restoration, and a servant who would suffer and die for his people. What is... Now that was the tutor for a first century Jew. I wonder what the tutor is for a 21st century seeker. Like we, we know the Jews kind of had kind of had a leg up in redemptive history. In chapter 9, 1 through 5, the whole um, Paul says that they are Israelites. To, let, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ. Anyone reading the Old Testament would have great background knowledge, great background knowledge, to lead them to their Messiah. Ironically, they're rejecting their Messiah. But what is what is the background knowledge for a 21st century seeker? I want to side with Augustine, who I'm really starting to like lately. I want to side with Augustine and say that the tutor for the seeker is their desires. That's their tutor. When you are grieved by sin in the world, what you're actually seeking for is Christ to come and to wipe away every tear and to make all things new. When you are longing for unity among people, among family, among men, you are actually longing for the kingdom of God and for the banquet he's prepared for us. When you're longing for something inexpressible that you cannot fully articulate, when you're seeking something higher than the mundane day-to-day, -day, what you're actually longing for is to see God face-to-face, -face, is to see the glory of God. And you're longing to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The tutor for men today, and a tutor for men today, is their desires, their very desires testify to God's provision in Christ. And that's why Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The, the heart will always be restless until it finds rest in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not leave you to your anxiety or pursuing rest endlessly. The good news is that our hearts, Christians' hearts, are not anxiously looking for the answer. It has been given in Jesus Christ. So, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, 
that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So, you want a right standing with God? How does one attain that? Be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law. It shows you the path. It's a hypothetical path to God. And without Christ, without Christ, there is still an opportunity. Perfection. That's the opportunity. Perfection according to God's law. That means you never think, say, or do anything. Anything against God's will. And that every second of your life, you are always doing the will of the Lord, like Christ. That's what the law says. Paul says in Galatians that a person, uh, a first century Jew, Jew desiring to be um, righteous through the law is now severed from Christ and fallen from grace. That means you have only two options, Christ or the law for the first century Jew. And Paul is telling people that the sun has risen and the old covenant has become obsolete. So if a person is going to approach God by their self-righteousness, it better be a perfect, perfect, spotless self-righteousness. And that unwavering requirement of perfection will lead men to anxiety. And that's why Paul does constantly cast the Jews as living anxiously about death. But in verses 6 through 7, the Apostle Paul does something interesting here. He gives, a, he gives the gospel a mouth, a voice. So if the message of the gospel could speak, if righteousness by faith could speak and became a human and stood here right beside me, what would it say to the spiritual wanderer or seeker or zealot? It starts in verse 6. So here's righteousness by the law has just become a human, and he's now speaking. He's right here, and what does he say? But the righteousness based on faith does not say, it does not say this, do not say into your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring the Savior down. It does not say who's going to go find the answer for us. It doesn't say who will send into the abyss to find the Savior, to bring Christ up from the dead. It would have been good if that Jesus stayed alive. He might have brought the kingdom. It doesn't say that. What does it say? What does the righteousness based on faith say? Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. In other words, Paul is pointing to the present and obvious availability. The availability, the present availability of salvation in Christ. A non-anxious message about God providing to you what he has required from you in Jesus Christ. So the good news about Jesus, the righteousness based on faith, is about the clear availability 
of God's eternal salvation in Jesus Christ standing and presented to men right here, right now. And to receive that, you believe. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Believe this message that God has sent Christ to pay for your sins, rise again, and share his life with you. What is the content then? So belief, we know faith, it's available. We can reach out through faith because faith, as I said last week, is receptive. Faith is always receiving. Self-righteousness is self-contained. But faith is the answer. We receive the provision God has given to us. What then are we receiving? What then are we having faith in? Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I, I love that passage because I, I, claim, I claim to it and I build my life on it. And this church and every church is built on that truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't answer this question with the raise of hands, but do you have doubts about things? Are you anxious about things? Do you wonder about, you know you don't have all the answers, neither do I, but here's what I'm clinging to, that I've confessed that Jesus is my Lord, and I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, and I know that my Savior lives, and I will be saved. We confess that Jesus is Lord. That means we're confessing that Jesus is the authority from God. When Jesus was on earth, he said, I'm going to heal this man so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When he calmed the waves and the sea, the disciples marveled and said, Who is this that even the wind and seas obey him. When he left and he gave us a commission, he said, all authority has been given to me. So go and make pupils, make disciples, make followers of me, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And I'm with you to the end of the age. The New Testament uses Psalm 110 a lot. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's what, that's what Christ is doing right now. Slowly but surely, as time marches on, the enemies of Christ are being made a footstool for his feet until he comes. This is why, this is why I have great hope for post-millennialism. Um, we can talk about that if you're not familiar with that term, but I have great hope that the world will be brought under the dominion of Christ. Not through war, not through violence, but through the power of Christ's might and love and the gospel going out. Jesus 
always talked of himself as the son of man. Why did he talk about himself as the son of man? Because the son of man is that guy from Daniel 7. We've talked about this many times. Daniel 7 says, Behold, I saw in the night visions, and one like a son of man approached the ancient of days, and to him was given power and dominion and authority. That's Christ. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is the authority from God. And that he is indeed God himself. I, I, I want to save a little treat for you next week in verse 13. But part of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord is believing that he is indeed, he does participate in the divine identity, which was blasphemy in the first century and mind-boggling today, but he does. And, and we call that, in theological language, the Trinity. So we confess that Jesus is Lord, number one. Second part of this confession and belief is that God has raised him from the dead. Again, God has not given us all the answers, and there's a lot I don't know. But he has given us a resurrection in history. And in the preaching in Acts, I believe this is Paul, in Acts 17, he says... The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the testimony of God to the authority of of Christ to judge the quick and the dead. So the resurrection is God's testimony that God has acted through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to reconcile man to God, to make all things new, and to destroy anything that raises itself against the knowledge of God. God has, so I think I told you this in Easter, if there is somebody, the spiritual wanderer, is asking, well, if God had just given me proof, I, I want some proof that Jesus is the authority from God. The resurrection is God's answer to that. He does not promise us anymore. He, us, he promised us an event in history. A man walking out of a grave and leaving an empty tomb behind him and ascending up to the right hand of God until the appointed time. That's the evidence he's giving you. You either submit yourself to that, or you deny that. Thirdly, so if you believe that Jesus is the authority from God, and if you believe that God has raised him from the dead, not in the sense that, oh, Jesus just lives on in our hearts today, if you believe that God has acted through Jesus Christ, evidenced by his resurrection, here's the promise. You will be saved. So you need to stand and cling to that promise. 
We are told in the New Testament to have patience with those who doubt. And I want you to have patience with yourself when you have anxieties and doubts. Understand? Have patience with yourself. But do not coddle your doubts. Do not allow them to create a mass of confusion in your heart. Do not allow your doubts to create anxiety in you. The promise is if you believe that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, listen to me, you will be saved. And you can stand on the promise that God will see you safely into his eternal kingdom. Yes, you will go through hard things. And I will go through hard things. And again, death is a very hard thing. And we will go through that. But I want you, from, from this day forward, to understand that your doubts shall not overcome you. You shall not be overtaken by anxiety. And when you are tempted to do so, or when the enemy is whispering lies, I want you to speak this. This is called positive confession. I don't believe that you can call things into existence, but I want you to positively confess that Jesus is Lord, and God has raised him from the dead. And based on that promise, I know I am safe and will be saved. So, you know that phrase, not all who wander are lost? Yes, they are. All who wander are certainly lost. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to wander. You don't have to say in your heart, I wish I could go up to the heavens and find the truth. I wish I could plumb the depths of knowledge and find reality. The righteousness based on faith says the word is near you. It is in your mouth if you're willing to speak it. It's in your heart if you're willing to believe it. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. So if you hear this, do not harden your hearts right now. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, Hebrews says. But allow what God is doing in your heart right now to take root in your soul, come under the authority of Christ, and understand that Christ made certain promises that he will see through. Amen? Next week we will finish the rest of uh, the rest of chapter 10. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen and amen.